Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. Packed to the rafters this week. Couple of new reports on university finances. Uh, digital skills and the curriculum. Some student views to check out. Some career stats. Our Black Lives Matter event. Student Futures Commission. And September is coming. And Bubbles are back in Wales. And Freshers is delayed in Scotland. It's all coming up. But the real question is not is it worth it, but who should make the, 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 the net contribution to the cost? Because we know that the percentage contribution from graduates and graduate debt in the UK is way above what it is in other countries. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us understand what's going on this week, as usual, a couple of fantastic guests. In South East London, Diana Beach is Chief Exec at London Hire. Diana, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Jim. I think my personal highlight is one that's shared by many of us in England this week, and it has to be Tuesday night's football match and when England emerged victorious um, against Germany. And I think professionally as well, it was a meeting I had just before that with the Mayor of London's office, because that was a real chance to have the opportunity to talk them through the diversity of our membership in London and how our 40 plus institutions can help with the recovery agenda. Fantastic. And in York, Ben Volumey is the Chief Exec at the University of York Students' Union. Ben, your highlight of the week? Hi, um, like, like Diana, I've always wanted to stay in Europe as well, but but in the interest of doing something different, I'm, I'm going to comment on the fact that this is officer changeover week for us in York, so we wave goodbye to one set of elected officers reflecting on their incredible successes and achievements throughout the year, and we welcome a new team of elected officers with new energy, fresh ideas, fresh perspectives, and we start to push them out on a journey of development and change, and that's all very exciting. The cosmic ballet goes on. So, yes, we start this week with money. This week, we've had a couple of reports on the state of sector finances, and it's a mixed picture. Diana, what did we learn? Thanks, Jim. It is a mixed picture indeed. So, first off, um, the Office for Students published a report at the end of last week looking at the financial sustainability of higher education providers in England, and it concluded that the situation across the sector actually remains quite sound, I think was the word they used, with reasonable financial resilience. And I think that's pretty impressive, considering that this time last year, there were quite a few reports doing their rounds predicting the demise of, I think, up to about a dozen providers. That's not to say, however, that we're out of the woods just yet. It won't surprise anyone listening to this to see the OFS reporting that the financial health of the sector might not be as strong now as it was before the pandemic, and emphasising that operating margins are getting tighter and borrowing levels are getting higher, particularly in relation to income. And all this was backed up this week with the release of HESA's annual financial data for the sector. And what this data show is that while student fee income has continued to steadily increase, it's things like research grants, investment income and donations that have shrunk considerably over the past couple of years. Um, commercial income has reduced too, so that's income derived from conferences, catering and student residences. And we can also see that universities are cutting back on what they spend. The figure that sticks out for me is that universities spent almost six and a half billion pounds less on staff across the last academic year. So yeah, I think what we're seeing is a real mixed bag. Yes, we've survived to this point and have avoided the worst fears of the pandemic. 
but the financial squeeze is real. It is happening. Uh, and quite frankly, I think we're heading into the autumn and the promised government spending review considerably weaker than we were before and probably facing even more financial squeezes or growth restrictions ahead when the government finally responds to the Yorga review. So yeah, I think it's by time to buckle up and brace ourselves. Ben, obviously, 15 odd months ago, we were talking about, you know, where's the, where's higher education's bailout? Where, when is a bailout coming? And in a way, a bailout did come, didn't it? It was lots of support to recruit students and then bank their tuition fees. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think there's a couple of fascinating stories in the data. Firstly, the fact this, that there is this continued dependency on tuition fee income um, as other income sources decline that you know that tells us something and it perpetuates the feeling of students that it is their growing debt burden coupled with the that you know their investment into the wider institutional economy through rent premiums and refectory bills and sports memberships that is propping up a sector who is on the verge of something you know really quite terrifying um, and, and that that frustrates them they look around the country particularly during the pandemic and they see you know employees getting furlough uh, mortgage holidays for landlords bailouts for airlines grants for nightclubs and bars whilst they just keep dipping their hand in their pocket and that, that you know that really frustrates them but but you know also i think what we can see as what we're starting to see as we look around the sector is some institutions are uh, reacting very differently to others so some institutions are kind of panicking and doubling down and building a bigger building with a you know more gold plated stairs and uh, weirder incentives to recruit more students Others are doing the opposite and kind of panicking and slashing their staff costs and, you know, trying to consolidate really quite aggressively, reviewing their uh, course profile, et cetera, et cetera. I think the institutions that do well are the ones who take a 20-year view and think about students as they are increasingly dependent upon them. Diana, it's hard, though, isn't it, to take that sort of long-term view when, as you say... You know, we've got this kind of post-August settlement to come and this sense that we may be on the cusp of working out what the the next 10 years worth of funding settlement is going to look like in terms of the kind of basic rules of the game. Oh, absolutely, Jim. I mean, obviously, the OFS report and forecasts are based on all things being equal. So they're not accounting for any future changes to government policy. Uh, and this could all have major impacts on universities' bottom lines, to put it bluntly. I mean, here in London, we're still waiting for the OFS response to the consultation on recurrent funding as you've just mentioned. And this will reveal if it supports the government's recommendation, amongst others, um, to cut the London waiting and also to um, press ahead with a reprioritisation of um, funds away from so-called high-cost, low-priority subjects, you know, like the arts and media studies, not my categorisation, by the way, um, and and pump that money into high-cost, high-value subjects like STEM and other health-related courses. Um, And so, of course, for, for providers in London, we've got over 40 members, they can't plan past this summer because, you know, across London, that's a £64 million cut Um, and obviously it's going to affect different providers differently depending on how much of a cushion they've got for some I'm afraid it might mean some harsh measures like staff cuts like cutting student services Um, and those are exactly the things we need to be avoiding right now. Ben I'll tell you the other thing that struck me I mean you know I mean there's nothing nothing inherently wrong with the OFS report you know OFS has a job to do in terms of analysing in detail the kind of you know the state of the sector's finances and it has done it and obviously we've then subsequently had TISA you know analysis of of account of you know latest numbers and so on it does strike me that we know a hell of a lot about the finances of higher education providers but my word are we kind of flying blind on understanding the finances of students there's just hardly anything out there and I'm not saying it's OFS's job there's hardly anything out there on understanding the financial position of students 
students. And given Orga is supposed to respond on both, you know, in a way, institutional funding and student funding, that's a problem, isn't it? I think it's a major problem. And, and I, I mean, look, you, you've teed up my primary observation about the, the Orga debate and all of that kind of associated debate about value for money that we can see playing out in the media and in, in Parliament and so on and so on. So there's this debate about is university experience worth, uh, you know, just over £9,000 a year? Now, personally, I think it absolutely is. UK universities are world class. We've got amazing academics and beautiful buildings with the best students in the world. And we're growing investment in student support and into careers and into this rich future. Of, of learning and teaching alongside research and discovery, all brought together with this amazing global outlook. outlook. Now, that is worth £9,000 a year. But, but the real question is not, is it worth it? But who should make the, 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 the net contribution to the cost? Because we know that the percentage contribution from graduates and graduate debt in the UK is way above what it is in other countries. So perhaps if we start a debate about not, not how much university is worth, but how the bill is paid, we actually might find a more fairer, more sustainable funding system for universities that doesn't require students to, to, to go broke in the process of paying for the jewel in the UK crown. Wow, an exciting autumn ahead. Uh, keep your eye on the site, obviously, as we inch closer to uh, an auger response and all the implications that come from that. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name is Jessica Benson-Eglinton. I'm a PhD student at the Sheffield Institute of Education, researching English widening participation policy. I recently wrote a blog for Wonky about the latest Education Committee inquiry into the outcomes of white working class children. Specifically, my blog talks about the shortcomings of the report in addressing gender and how this fits into a wider narrative that all boys are doing badly in education and all girls are doing well. In reality, data suggests that white British girls from low-income backgrounds are doing only marginally better, on average, than their male peers, including some of the lowest rates of participating in higher education. For example, just 2% of white British girls with free school meals enrol at a high-tariff institution compared to 12% of those without. I argued that we need to move past overly simplistic understandings of gender outcomes to ensure that groups of girls who are experiencing inequalities aren't further marginalised. Now, news from Scotland this week, and DK is across it. The Scottish Funding Council has released the long-awaited third and final phase of its coherence and stability review. If you're more familiar with policy in England, you can see these proposals for the future of post-compulsory education in Scotland as a more consultative and considered version of the proposals in the Westminster Government's White Paper and in the Skills and Post-16 Education Bill. The general thrust of the report responds both to the pressures of pandemic and recovery and the longer-term need for a refreshed skills provision. HE and FE are already closely linked in Scotland. These proposals would bring them even closer together, with a common quality assurance regime and funding by level rather than by sector. Both of these will involve much further consultation, with the latter to be trialled at Scotland's Rural College and the University of the Highlands and Island. SFC have also taken steps to put in place a set of impact measures that map to national goals and will develop a series of local bodies called tertiary provision pathfinders to engage with future student demand and employer skills needs at a regional level, which will feed into and draw from national planning. We will also see a national estate strategy for HE and FE and more support for providers looking to shift to smaller units of provision and online teaching. SFC will also take steps to develop a credit transfer framework. 
But the mood music is very much about consolidation and integration. Providers can expect to be sharing to support and back office services in future, though SFC is also still making the case for uplifts to the unit of research for teaching funding. HE in Scotland has always been the UK sector with the most central planning and the least exposure to the market, although competition for international students and research funding will always remain fierce. The SFC's proposal will keep this distinctive planned aspect to post-compulsory provision. Now, meanwhile this week, we published new research with our partner Adobe, exploring students' views of the links between curriculum, aspiration and digital literacy. Ben, what stood out for you? Um, there's loads of rich stuff in there. So the, the report found that, that you know students really want to change the world and that uh, they are frequently pretty clear about how university life can help them on that journey, whether that's through their core curriculum or through their co-curricular opportunities. And, and we also can see that digital literacy is an essential piece of the puzzle. Having those digital skills will help students to collaborate, communicate, create. And the report told us that uh, digital skills are best developed through integration into the curriculum and applied in assessment and often in co-curriculum as well. I felt that the report kind of called for some fairly urgent reflection from universities and students' unions. It asked us to think not just about access to technology and Wi-Fi and software, that is, of course, very important, but also about how students use that technology and how we manage and maintain that technology to work on it with them. So, you know, ultimately, there was this overwhelming sense that a lot of the student respondents, many of whom, interestingly, were academic representatives, course reps and so on, um, are desperate to have a conversation about how technology is embedded within the curriculum. Um, Mark Andrews from Adobe said that, that, that while digital remains an object of discussion and development of practice in itself, it may remain somewhat semi-detached from wider discussions about the development of curriculum and pedagogy. So marrying together technological advancements with student voice and with pedagogy could be really exciting. And I couldn't agree more. There's this opportunity right now to, to engage students in a conversation about curriculum, about technology, in a really, really transformational way. Mm, Diana, I was reading bits of this, and, and, and I was reminded of that old debate about you know students and group work, where what universities will say is that because we shoved you together in a group, you learnt how to you know work with other people. But quite often that process is unsupported by kind of deliberate support for students understanding how to work with other people, given they've spent you know eighteen years you know in an education environment that judges them for their solitary contributions. And and you know there was bits of this I thought where you know it is true obviously that everyone has you know spent more time with digital tools over the past 18 months but how supported that's been for students and staff is perhaps another question mm, yeah I, I do think this is where sort of employers and business links come in as well and of course our universities across the country are fostering these um, in their regions and you know Ben's just said that students want to change the world well actually employers want students to change the world too and, and here I'm going to give a shout out to some recent research by Kingston University one of our members who've um, done published a future skills report and what this is it's a survey of more than 2,000 employees about the skills that they believe will be vital for thriving national economy. And these include, you know, some of the usual suspects like problem solving, communication and critical thinking. But digital prowess is also there. So I think there is something, you know, it's not just about clumping students together and get them group working, but it's about bringing those industry leaders and industry practitioners in and involve them in the teaching because they are actually using these digital tools and students can learn from them. And it's also about work placements as well. Now, I do appreciate that's become more difficult um, during the pandemic. But again, it's giving those students sort of hands-on experience to shadow um, some of the leaders
businesses and the industries they'd be going to. So yeah, it's definitely about more than lumping students together. Well, yeah, f- fascinating stuff. And we'll put links to that Kingston report and obviously uh, the Adobe report and so on in the show notes on the site. Now, earlier this week, we held another evidence session to feed into the UPP Foundation Student Futures Commission. I caught up with outgoing Worcester Students' Union President and Chair of the session, Meg Price, to see what happened. Thanks, Jim. So, yes, we started with Danny from Hearts SU, who gave us an insight into why it is that students are craving the return of in-person teaching. Um, So students reported that the number one thing they felt that the university and SUs could do to encourage more social interaction and community building next year was holding more in-person classes. Interestingly, academically, um, a lot of our students were very happy for some of the teaching, especially large lectures, um, to be completely online, pre-recorded with no interaction. Um, However, on the other side of this, this does remove a lot of the opportunities of that natural social interaction and friendship making that I was discussing. So whilst academically they feel that they're not necessarily losing very much by having pre-recorded lectures online, although they would like small seminar groups, um, socially that does remove those kind of um, authentic social interactions that students are really craving. Next, we heard from Lily from Leicester SU, who talked to black students about how important it was to find others from a similar background and how that's been impacted by the pandemic. On socialisation, as we are kind of improving socialisation again, um, even um, extroverts, even for them, it didn't feel natural to um, go to events and communicate in person. Um, they didn't really know how to um, approach other people and they didn't notice the impact that this had had on them, I guess, until they were in that situation themselves. So they kind of um, they had identified this as a kind of an indicator that their mental health was poorer than perhaps they um were expected they they realized themselves at the time the one of the things that we spoke about was um the importance of community to them and what it took for them to kind of build connections with people and i think the three key things that came out were um having um the same lived experiences or um having the same identity as somebody else um course was a big one and common interests so that could fall under sports and societies but it could also fall under um just common interests that um fall outside the um the box of i guess the co-curricular activities Ryan and Rickia from City University SU looked at employability and found students keen to know how they can bounce back from rejection. The sort of statistics that came out of the the commission survey so that half of students um, have no confidence about uh, the job market when they graduate and also that a third of students are worried that their degree won't help them secure a graduate job. and so because of this, we wanted to look into what is causing students to have little confidence in the job market uh, and worry about the value of their degree, um, how we can uh, make students more confident going into the post-graduation job market, and what more can universities and unions do to support students looking uh, for jobs and feel confident about applying for jobs. So we found out that confidence was something that was really important. And in trying to find out why the lack of confidence in getting a graduate job job was important students told us that they perceived the job market to be awful extremely competitive and bleak in particular students feel infuriated and confused by the process of applying for jobs and when we spoke to them students mentioned that rejections for jobs and not hearing back from employers were some of the reasons why they weren't feeling positive about the whole 
getting a job process. And students just also described being disheartened by multiple rejections and the silence of getting no response from employers. So as a student's union, we can consider what more businesses, organisations and industries could do to instill this confidence in students and graduates that is so lacking and is obviously needed. So asking how their processes can help to encourage graduates and create confidence among students and recent graduates. And when we spoke to students, they believed that they should be taught how to bounce back from rejection and how to deal with these knocks to confidence around jobs and applying for new roles. Students agreed that the importance of activities beyond their degree was really um, something that helped in making them more employable. So they agreed that the importance of wider experience and ex extracurriculars before the pandemic were really important and that there was a consensus that the COVID-19 pandemic had detrimental, detrimentally limited opportunities such as volunteering, internships and soft skill development. So the lack of access to these sorts of opportunities were causing students to feel less confident about applying for jobs and how employable they considered themselves to be. Next, we heard from Rob from Bangor SU, who had some fantastic insights into the way students use and value asynchronous materials. What was interesting, though, I think, with that came up was that there can be a feeling of time pressures when watching pre-recorded sessions. So that sort of it flowed into that discussion about those sessions and Students sort of reported they can often take sometimes nearly double the time to, to rewatch because they're pausing the session. And although there's those positives that I talked about of they don't have to hastily take notes because of that, there's pausing, there's perhaps rewinding. We all do it with a podcast, don't we? We might listen to a podcast and we go, oh, I'll skip back 15 seconds. So it doesn't just take how that hour or that two hours um and that can lead to that sense of that overwhelming workload which i think we'd we picked up on as a, as a student's union um before but i think it's possibly one of the the reasons for that overwhelmness is because of this pre-recorded lecture where you can then look back at it taking like so much more time um and what perhaps isn't taken into account there as well um if multiple modules have that um set up then other modules might not um, realise. So in terms of a whole programme, you might not realise the sheer volume of work which isn't going into that, um, that programme because the modules work on perhaps quite an isolationist basis. One bit of really good best practice that um, we came across sort of that might tackle this as well, um, but also help with that understanding and um, sort of the best of both worlds, I guess, was instead of having that full two-hour lecture whether that's pre-recorded or in person um, one student reported that a lecturer decided to have an hour recorded lecture where you'd sit down watch the recorded lecture and then have the one hour interactive session and what the students were saying is this they gave them time to understand the subject um, before having the live session and that live session was about application an opportunity to ask questions in that relaxed way and it worked really well. Everything made more sense, they said, compared to their first year, um, where they had that two hour slot um, and less opportunities to ask questions. Um, and those pre-recorded sessions were released about a week before. So they had time to look at them. They could do that in their own time. They did actually report still that that one hour session maybe took them about an hour and a half to go through. So they understood the session to write useful notes. Um, but they did feel more organised. Um, and that they could interact with the session better. And finally, we heard from Nick at York University SU, who had fascinating insights to convey about students and their social confidence. The Another enabler was smaller groups. They particularly liked smaller groups um, online. And obviously, as we've come out of certain lockdowns, being able to... Um, being able to interact with smaller groups in person was really... Um, was very was important. And then the couple of PhD students talked about um, research check-ins as well, so being a good source of um, social interaction with supervisors and um, 
for the PhD students being able to um, catch up on research and check in on, on how they're doing PhD wise really helped with with social anxiety and, and just just staying in touch with people really. Thanks so much to all our SUs that took part. You can find the full session on wonky.com. For me, the thing that stood out was that so many of the issues impacted some students pre-pandemic. Fixing them isn't about restrictions lifting, it's about taking deliberate steps to improve their social capital as a way of supporting their confidence and attainment. Before I go, just a reminder that any SU, and indeed any university that's done any research into the student experience this year, is welcome to submit their findings to the Commission. Just go to the UPP Foundation website to find out more. Thanks, Jim. Now, nearly half of students feel unprepared for employment following the pandemic, according to a new survey. Diana, what's going on here? Yeah, okay. So this survey um, was released by Prospects, and it's a survey of around 7,000 students and graduates. And what it shows is that nearly half of students feel unprepared for employment following the pandemic, and almost all student respondents said they faced barriers to securing employment, and that's often due to a lack of work experience over the past year. Now, in theory, things should be looking up for this year's graduates, particularly after the ONS confirmed that the UK has seen a dramatic growth in job vacancies as pandemic restrictions have begun to ease. But in practice, I think students are right to remain nervous because we don't yet know if there is a real bounty of jobs out there or if what we're seeing is just a a reset to pre-pandemic vacancy levels and that competition is actually going to be much more intense than ever, given the thousands of more experienced workers, if you like, who may have also lost their jobs during the pandemic and they might be looking for work again too. I mean, the prospect survey certainly showed that the pandemic has prompted some graduates to think about changing careers. Um, Some are doing so because they've been been inspired to, you know, join the pandemic response effort and go into so-called key worker professions. Um, Some want to help power up the industries that they see struggling. And others, as the Financial Times is reporting this week, are enrolling on postgraduate courses such as MBAs because they want to set themselves apart in the jobs market and buy themselves a little bit more security for a year or so. So I think while it's potentially good news for the postgraduate student recruitment market, and this will hopefully boost high level skills in the long term um, for our labour market, it is bad news for students who, for whatever reason, want or need to get out into the labour market right away. And it's also bad news for employers who might find they have to work on graduates' confidence levels a little bit more this year as they have missed out on vital work experience and you know just general face-to-face interaction that's uh, that postgraduate stuff i mean that, that that was obviously also one of the things that was said in that um th- those clips we had from the student evidence session ben about you know panic masters you know our students you know suddenly enrolling onto master's courses because you know they're lacking the with, with good reason in some cases lacking the confidence in the jobs market you know in, in another world perhaps in another with another government i don't know maybe m- maybe we would have seen you know some extra support for students to get um mastered up but uh, we sort of are where we are aren't we yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of benefits to people entering the postgraduate market right now, but I, I do fear it's kind of kicking a can down a road and, and, and similar problems will exist in the future. So, I mean, look, there are lots of sound bites that the economy is bouncing back, but, but my fear is that when you look at the actual jobs that exist there, there's an awful lot of hospitality jobs as cafes, shops and bars and cinemas reopen and students were come, told to come to university to study law to become a barista and not a bartender. 
Um, so institutions proudly shout about the amount of graduates who move swiftly into graduate level jobs and how you shouldn't worry about their 40, 50k debt because you'll statistically earn more. I don't think the market supports that right now. Secondly, that, you know, look, if students have spent a year learning in lockdown, online Zoom, et cetera, et cetera, and they've told us that they're, they're struggling to engage a bit with online lectures, they've told us they're a little bit anxious and a little bit too self-conscious to turn on their online camera, they've got Zoom fatigue, and then we tell them to do an online interview for a job where they're never actually going to go into the office and meet those colleagues. We, we know that's not, you know, that they're, they're, they're too tired for it, they're exhausted, you know, that you can't pass an online interview that way. So we really need to re-engineer some of our career support and, and that kind of whole transition from academic study into professional life, rather than just assuming we can stick a master's course in front of them and just deal with it later. Yeah, this 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 is a real challenge, isn't it, Diane? How do you do, you know, you know, radically different career support, often for students who, in truth, may well have graduated, um, in in an environment where you know a lot of it will have to be done online, and we're just kind of recovering from the pandemic. This is a real puzzle. It absolutely is. And, you know, I can even relate to that, having started my new job nine months ago in the middle of the pandemic, and I still haven't met many of my team members. So, you know, I'm totally with the students and the graduates this year. Um, but I do think one thing we're not talking about enough is um, fostering entrepreneurship skills amongst our, our graduates. You know, being in the middle of a pandemic is perhaps a per- perfect climate. Many graduates had a bit more bit more time away from, away from the screen when they get it um, to think about some of their big ideas they've had and how they could be using um, their skills they've gained in their degree more imaginatively. And I know that some of our members here in London, for example, are investing quite a lot in sort of um, entrepreneurial skills, um, places like Middlesex University or the University of Westminster, because these are the things that will provide a real boost to students' confidence. It's something they can do remotely. And of course, it's gives a real boost to the national economy, which of course is what um, HMT will be looking for. Ben, obviously we talk a lot about what, you know, what universities should do, what, you know, what, you know, university leaders should do next and what they should invest in and so on. But there is a message here, isn't there, for graduate recruiters who want the very best graduates. They, they are going to have to do some different things over the next year in order to get the genuinely best people. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think you're right, but I think that's, that's a massive opportunity. So, we know that students are, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for their, their, to have more power. They are looking to feel well connected, both, you know, with, with their peers, but also with the wider world. If you can build that proposition into a job that by coming and working for me, you, you know, you will grow, you will develop, you will be given some autonomies and some responsibilities and some power. You will feel connected to your surroundings and the people around you and your, you know, your customers or your members or whatever it is. That, that's going to really excite students. They're going to want to come and work for you, right? So, so if we can build jobs in that way, I, I think it would become very exciting. Yeah, because part of this is about saying to employers that might be nervous around investment in, you know, new talent just at the back of the pandemic. Actually, it may well be students that can help you reinvent your business, take advantage of the post-pandemic world and so on. And, you know, we, 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 we've got a kind of sell to do, haven't we? Absolutely. I mean, if I can chip in, um, these students this year and last year are some of the most innovative and imaginative students um, we've ever had because they've had to adapt really, really quickly uh, to an unprecedented situation and the new normal, if I can use 
use that term. Um, and these are students that can show adaptability, resilience, imagination, creativity and flair. And I think um, graduate employers are onto a winner. Now, next up, earlier this week, we held our second Black Lives Matter in higher education event where we explored what has to be done across universities to make higher education truly inclusive. Friend of the show, now consultant and race equality expert Amate Doku anchored the event and he started by setting out what whole institution approach to tackling racism might look like. Let's have a listen. Um, and, and really ask the right questions to get to the root causes. So if you take an example here, the low reporting of racism uh, among students as a challenge, you know, to what extent are students aware of the process? Quite often people jump to that and say, well, that, that's the solution. We just need to make students more aware of it. But actually, there's some other questions. You know, to what extent is the process itself encouraging or discouraging reporting racist incidents? If you t- it might be that students know what the process is, but they 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 know some students who've been through the process and it's been a, a terrible experience or they've not had the right support. Or, for example, they've um, only... Um, been able to engage with white um, uh, staff along the process and that's a, that's a real barrier so really understand that but then the final question might be to what extent are wider university issues discouraging students from reporting so maybe students are saying well I'm, I'm not reporting because I don't think that the the university's got a handle on these issues so you've really got to make sure you're asking the right questions getting to those root causes and just four quick things on um, principles for consulting uh, minoritized communities. Make sure you consult on their terms. So don't set up a consultation um, a process which has hasn't where there's been no engagement consulting. Whether that's the right way to do it. Take a trauma informed approach. It's really important. Um, you are. A, um, quite likely to be engaging with students uh, and staff who have um, experienced racial trauma uh, or, and have some really, really difficult experiences. You might be asking them to relive those experiences. So make sure the right supports are there in place um, for them to do that. Don't ask for solutions. So don't say what do we think needs to be done to fix this specific problem ask and there's a subtle difference ask what would improve the situation what would improve the experience for you because then you're asking okay well i think you know i would um you know feel uh would prefer if i had better support at this stage um i think um you know i would expect the information to be in this place as opposed to this is how we need to restructure the university in order to deliver this thing which is sometimes um a line that, that sometimes institutions cross in these um consultations tell us what we need to do you know, what are the nuts and bolts that need to change? That's not appropriate. What you need to ask is what things will improve the experience for you? And then finally, don't just ask about race. And this is something that I'm sometimes guilty of. It's very easy to just ask them about their experiences in relation to race. When um, it, there may be some other barriers which um, uh, they may be disproportionately affected by, um, which aren't being asked um, because um, it's seen as not in scope. So, for example, uh, you know, assessment and feedback. Let's say assessment and feedback is a real challenge in the institution. It may be that disproportionately um, black students or, or, or students of colour are, are less likely, are, are, are finding that a greater challenge. But in the conversations we're having, we're just asking about, you know, experiences of overt racism or microaggressions. So it's really important to make sure that we're understanding the full range of barriers that they might be facing going back to that student journey um, picture that i showed earlier on great stuff and if you want to catch up on the event you'll find a recording slides and other resources from the session on wonky.com forward slash events and finally uh, we got some more morsels on the road to reopening and the potential implications for he this week uh ben how much of the speculation is idle yeah i mean it, it feels like a really nervy time and depending which which publication you pick up you know we're either in full lockdown for the next 12 months or all the shackles are off and we can go for it um you know all of which feels to me like you know just creating more uncertainty for students and institutions and students unions who, who you know none of them know 
quite where to turn and are regularly reminded by government that they may or may not release some guidance at a later date that may or may not change the rules. Um, it, you know, it's this movable feast. And, and, I, and I, I really do worry about some of the, you know, some, sometimes some of the assumptions are bizarre. So the idea that you, you know, you, you, you might not do freshers and that everyone will suddenly be nice and safe and sound and the virus won't exist is it's just preposterous. If you, if you don't run events and orientation activity, people will congregate, you know, somewhere else, indoors or whatever. And, and, and God, wouldn't it be a surprise if actually the virus spread within residencies? Um, you know, so, so, so there's... Yes. So, 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 I mean, just to say, this was the this was the thing from Scotland. So, uh, you know, for people who haven't read it, and I've got a link on the site, the, 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 the advisory group in Scotland, so not ministers, but the advisory group that advises ministers, their advice to ministers was just published raw. And it effectively said, let them all move in, start term, but don't hold any events because they might be risking. It's like, well, if you've just filled your halls to 100% and the Students Association isn't putting a freshers event on, surely a nightclub in town is still going to do so i mean it's just bizarre that some of the most ridiculous stuff i've read i think that that, that stuff well and and the only outcome from that is that students will find their own ways of entertaining themselves and making friends and meeting people so they don't go batshit crazy and then they'll be blamed by the media and mps for behaving irresponsibly but but you know so, so this is an absolute recipe for disaster i think and it is absolutely ironic as well for these stories to be coming out in a week when universities across the country are showing us that they can organise COVID secure, socially distanced events. We've seen graduations, uh, one at which where I'm a governor at the University of Worcester. They have proceeded, you know, without problem. And I see my alma mater, University of Cambridge, uh, as having its socially distanced graduations today. Students are finding ways to celebrate with their friends and family, you know, in a responsible way. They can do it. Bear, this sort of moral quandary that we've got, which is, you know, the, the, the young people don't appear to be massively susceptible to the worst ravages of the disease. But we are not going to wait until they've all been double jabbed before we open nightclubs that they'll congregate in, festivals that they will congregate in, and universities that they will be taught in, apparently. Is, you know, is, is, is that wise, do you think? Or ought we just to be waiting until every 18 year old has been double jabbed? You know, what, what's the issue? What, what do we do about international students? Where do you, where do you sit on this kind of, this weird period we've got now between having to open Gatwick so that people can go to Benedict? but not quite having got round to double jabbing everyone yet. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly I can see evidence of some quite, you know, actually some quite well-considered... Uh, I suppose orientation planning within institutions. So, you know, at, at my own institution, there's talk about how we stagger arrivals across a different period. At my own institution, you know, term finished last week, and we've started a conversation about where will the, the you know, the drop-in vaccination centre be, be physically sited so that it can be built into the orientation programme for those who perhaps need their second jab or, or even their first jab on arrival. Where will the testing clinic be? And, and, and actually, at very early stages of discussion about how would it be used. Um, I, I I think there there isn't an appetite for it to be an enforced testing process. But actually, all of the data and evidence from the last six months is that our students have been using it, particularly at the end of term. You know, they were using that because they didn't want to spread the virus. So locally, there are actually good quality risk assessments being made about how can we safely orientate students um, give them the support, the vaccinations, the testing they need, give them the advice about, you know, how to socialise safely and responsibly. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's one of the positive outcomes of this year of kind of slightly irregular guidance from the government is that institutions have just started to do it themselves. And actually, 
quite well. Yeah, and there's a key here, isn't there, Diana, which is universities that are waiting to be told what to do by government are going to have to wait a long time. So in many ways, it's probably wisest to crack on. Absolutely. I mean, at London Higher, another example of a regional approach, we've been having constant discussions throughout the pandemic with representatives from NHS London, etc., just to work out what is possible, what we can do, uh, and what you know, what capabilities we have on campus to see to things like, you know, as Ben's just said, the provision of extra information, advice, and guidance, particularly um, when it comes to international students as well. They're less familiar with our health system and how it works. Just make sure we are there, signposting them in the right direction, and have the right provisions for them when they arrive. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks to Diana, Ben, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.